Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? So in this podcast, we have Deputy Secretary of State Rich Vile. Rich, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So I actually saw on, on Facebook earlier today that you have your own podcast. Is that right? We at the Secretary of State's office have decided to showcase some of the services that we offer and some of the people that are working at the Secretary of State's office. So we've got in the can about eight interviews with division heads right now. We've put two up on our website and we're going to put the rest of them up. Gradually, we intend to cover elections, audits, archives, corporations, all the things that the Secretary of State does and and run podcasts on those things. We have some fantastic audits and just crazy stuff that happens when our auditors are doing performance audits. So I can't wait to interview some of our auditors on the podcast. Yeah, I heard a lot about the audits from Dennis Richardson that he had really kind of stepped up the the audit process, but I don't think I know any of the details of those. So that'll be... That'd be really good to listen to. Well, you've probably heard about the foster care audit. That yes. was a big one. Sure have. Yes. Um, just today, I was working with the audit folks on the SNAP audit. SNAP, I don't remember what SNAP stands for, but it's, it's food stamps. Food Supplemental stamps, yeah. nutrition, nutrition assistance, for, assistance yeah. program yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And we had an audit where one of our auditors actually uncovered a criminal ring in Southern Oregon that was busted by the U.S. Attorney's Office. And this was a a cartel. It was murders. It was the whole nine yards that returned up through uh, Through auditing food stamps. Wow. (laughs) That's crazy. Well, before we get a little too much further, um, why don't you give us about a two-minute bio of who you are and how you got into politics? Because you were a former legislator as well. I spent the first 45 years of my professional life as a lawyer. Right. Um, started a law firm and specialized in community association law, which got me down to the Capitol a lot, testifying before committees on condominiums and homeowner associations. Yeah, real quick. So small world, your brother is my association's attorney. So I've met him a couple of times, Mike. Yeah, I'm really sorry about that. If it doesn't work out, <laughs> let me know. No, he's been great, Mike, if you're listening. Mike, Mike's actually a very good lawyer. He is. Um, sorry to interrupt. I just had to. No, not at all. Anyway, I got, I got a taste for the legislature and always thought, you know, I could make a contribution here. I've been on the Washington County Planning Commission for about the last 10 years. And I began to really develop a passion for the building of a west side limited access highway, solving the west side transportation problem that we have here in the Portland metro area. So that would be like 217, keep going north, that type of place? or Originally, that was what was on the books about 35 years ago, but nobody anticipated we would grow this far out. Mm. So now the real smart engineers are looking at this and saying, we've got two choke points on I-5, the Columbia River and the Willamette River, the Boone Bridge and the I-5 Bridge up going to Vancouver. We need to bypass both those choke points with another bridge, two bridges actually. So the idea would be probably tie in to the 205 up north in Vancouver, 
come down across Sylvie's Island, come okay. through the West Hills into Hillsboro, back down through our neighborhood here in Shoals, back down through Sherwood, cross the Willamette River in Newburgh, and then back out to Donald um, on I-5. And that would cut off anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour for wow. the truckers almost all day long in our current traffic configurations. Jeez. That would be amazing. Traffic in Portland is nuts. Well, <laughs> breaking news, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And, and here we spent all this time on carbon during this last legislative session. If the cars weren't idling through Portland at right. 2.3 miles an hour, and if we really had them moving at normal speeds, that would be an unbelievable savings in the emissions right there. We just had a report from the Lewis and Clark Law uh, students the other day talking about diesel emissions in Portland. Mm. Perfect way to address that. Anyway, I got elected in 2016, <laughs> went to the legislature, and I didn't get my road built. Mm. And then in 2018, in my opinion, I got trumped and <laughs> did not as get said, as, did, as did several others. Yeah. <laughs> and so... I was kind of a lost ball in high weeds, and Bev Clarno asked me to be her deputy secretary after she was appointed by the governor. And I was only too happy to take that position and have really enjoyed that. Very cool. Just going back to the road real quick. You know, so the Portland Metro City Council, those folks, have been stripping lanes out of downtown Portland with the intent of getting people making traffic so bad that people are then forced to either walk, bike, or take public transit. And they're continuing to do that. The thing that I keep telling people is we are probably 10, 15, 20 years away from the autonomous driving revolution. And all those cars are going to be electric and no one is going to take public transit anymore because it is going to be trivially inexpensive to take electric self-driving vehicles. And the first ones that are going to change are these long-haul truckers. It totally makes sense to improve our infrastructure and the powers that be, especially in the Portland area, are going about it the whole absolutely wrong way. I served on the Autonomous Vehicle Task Force when I was in the legislature. In fact, oh. I, I co-chaired that with Representative McLean from Hillsboro. And I can tell you your 15-year outlook is probably way too pessimistic. It's going to happen before that. Hmm. And the reality is that, in fact, Metro's insistence upon rapid transit or bus systems that serve more people is not going to serve us well. I am convinced that we have got to recognize that rubber tires are here to stay for a lot longer, even if they don't have a human operator behind the wheel, it's going to be very, very soon that we completely max out all of these roads to the degree that we haven't already in many places. I can't go south on I-5 in the afternoon after about two o'clock from Tigard South. It's a complete it's parking awful. lot. It's a mess. Yep. In the mornings, as I'm headed to Salem from here, I'm looking over on the other side and the inbound from Wilsonville all the way into Portland is just a parking lot between 6.30 and 8.30 in the morning. We got to do something or it's going to cripple us economically as well as just make us all mad. Yeah. 
That's exactly right. My first apartment when I lived here was just right off Boone's Ferry, exit 290 off of I-5, and just any time of day trying to get up into Portland, what on, you know, as the crow flies is a 10-mile drive, you know, something would go on, you know, friends would meet for a happy hour at 5.30 or 6 o'clock or whatever. It's like, okay, I'll get in the car, I'll be right up. And it would take an hour, an hour and a half sometimes to get up at going the opposite direction at the end of the day of drive time. And it's just, this city is, I love it. I've, it'll be next, next week is four years that I've lived in Portland and I'm super happy to be here, but the traffic in this city and the absolute intransigence of city councils, the state legislature, present company excluded <laughs> to just nobody being willing to do anything about it is just mind boggling. You know, I went to the legislature with that as my, I called it the BHAG. Um, if you've ever read Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, he talks about having a big, hairy, audacious goal. Some, <laughs> some people use other words. Um, and my BHAG was to get a West Side limited access highway built. But what I very quickly came to the conclusion was the problem wasn't that people didn't want a road built. The problem was extreme partisanship that prevented people from actually having a meaningful conversation in depth about the policy that would let us get a road built. The concept of uh, rubber tire transportation is now seen for some reason as a Republican concept. Environmentalism and public transportation is seen as a Democratic concept. It isn't. There are absolutely issues that everybody needs to deal with. And again, similar to the carbon conversation, I'm convinced that if we were able to overcome the partisanship, we would do much, much better in actually getting good policy conversations going. So we talked about this a little bit on the phone prior to the podcast, but what do you think is the solution to this partisanship? Is it just we all need to get along? Is there a policy change that we can implement? What do you think? Well, we've been lamenting the problem for a long, long time. George Washington hated partisanship. Adams thought it was going to ruin the country and wrote so. I think we're at an inflection point where some kind of structural change is really critical. I think the experience of the Nebraska legislature is very informative. Are you guys familiar with the Nebraska legislature and how it works? The I'm unicameral not. legislature? Well, everybody talks about the fact that it's unicameral. But the real secret to the Nebraska legislature is they don't allow caucuses to operate inside the Capitol. Is that right? That's interesting. And they're not the only ones. Um, Texas has gone to that. Several other states have gone to that. Whereas Oregon, the first day you get there as a new member of the legislature, first thing that happens is you go into a caucus meeting where they tell you, now here's here's how we're going to vote this session. Here's what the other guys are going to do. Here's what we're going to do to make them look bad. That's the caucus process. Um, so Nebraska has this thing where everyone is elected. They're partisan. There's no question that people belong to parties and everybody kind of knows what party you belong to, but you don't have an R or a D behind your name when you get to the legislature. Hmm. Now, the other thing that happens, and this is kind of getting in the weeds a little bit, a lot of people that haven't been in a legislature don't know this, the Speaker of the House and the Senate President choose all of the committee chairs. Mm -hmm. Okay, And they choose those committee chairs so that they can get the work they want to get done. 
and in many cases, to the degree possible, make the other party look bad. And almost never, in fact, never that I can remember, is the committee chair a member of the other party. Then the committee assignments are made by the speaker as well. So hmm. even though I have a transportation interest, I may not get on the transportation committee. Now, in my case, I did. I was fortunate. But often you're not put on a committee for the very reason that we don't want you to look like a superstar. <laughs> we don't want you to get reelected. Therefore, let's keep you off that committee or this committee. And they probably make sure their own party has a majority in most of those committees as well. Every single committee. Yeah. The majority party yep. has a majority member on every single committee. And honestly, the committee process is where all the bills really are supposed to get thrashed out. That's where the testimony is taken. That's where supposedly the, the real issues are talked about. But, but in reality, it's canned because back in the caucus room, we already know what we're supposed to do when we show up in committee. It's, I've had conversations with friends, actually. And yeah, so I was on Newt's campaign staff and I, you know, obviously would have liked to see him win the governorship. And it's like, oh, how great would this be to get a Republican be the governor of Oregon? And I've had conversations with a couple of different friends who said, yeah, you know, Kate's not even the most powerful person in Oregon. It's Tina Kotek. Ah, uh, yeah. And yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. <laughs> it's amazing to me, and maybe this is my partisanship coming out, how poorly written some of these bills are that are coming out of these out of Salem. The one that Nick and I like to disagree on is the single family zoning bill that just came out. I do like to disagree on that. Uh, House we, Bill 2001. Is that what it was? Yeah. We agree on most things. This is one thing where I think we see a little bit differently. However, I think we can agree that it was badly written. If you're going to get rid of single family zoning, without any other stipulations about parking or sewer or electric or facilities or street width, how does that get out? How do they overlook all of that? I mean, you quadrupled the number of people in a specific area and all these other things going to just be a mess. Well, yes. Unfortunately, it was one of the better written bills that dealt with the housing and land use issues this last session, mm. but it was still bad. Yeah. And how could it be better? It could be better if there was an actual ability to engage in a policy discussion that didn't have these partisan overtones. Hmm. Every bill could be better if, if you could do that. If we weren't so busy trying to make sure the us and them gets protected and we look good and they look bad, we could get a lot better policy coming out of here. And I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but we spend about $10 million a year on caucus offices. Wow. They have a big staff. They have special rooms they meet in. Hmm. President's office, president of the Senate's office has a big staff. The speaker's office has a big staff. And the speaker's office is just a second majority caucus office. Right. I mean, there's no question about it. All those people are, are partisan Hardcores, I guess, is the best way to put it. Sure. So it's a system, to answer your question, how could we do better? It's a system that, in my opinion, is broken. And until we do something systematically to change it, we can talk about it all we want, but it's not going to get fixed. If we were to elect the speaker by secret ballot on the floor... Hmm. Rather than the caucus predetermining who was going to be this, the majority mm -hmm. caucus predetermining, I think it would change things dramatically. If we were to elect our committee chairs, I think you'd see 
Democrats filling this kind of committee and Republicans filling that kind of committee and, and there'd be a very, very big mix. But as long as one person amasses the power to control all that through partisan management, we're not going to get it done. And even that's going to be hard because the party in power is not going to want to give up power, regardless of which party it is. And we all know which one that is in right Oregon. now. Yeah. <laughs> but I can, I cannot say definitively that if Republicans were in power right now, that we would not also want to keep that power. Well, well <laughs> so, go, please, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, yes. I, I mean, for, I, I think it'd be a long time before that would ever get to be the case. But I, for me, as, as an outsider moving in, again, I, it'll be four years next week that I've been here. The thing that strikes me about Oregon is it's much, it is much more purple than I think a lot of people outside of Oregon would give it credit for. There are a lot of parts of the state that are red. There's a lot of parts of the state that are full of navs and independents and people who don't care for the Democratic or the Republican Party. And that's fine. That's their prerogative. But the thing that strikes me is I think there's a lot more good public policy ideas that would come out of a a system like what you're talking about, where the ideas and the merits get rewarded rather than the letter behind a person's name. And instead of being beholden to partisan, you know, hackery might be a strong word, but beholden to partisan well wishes, however well intentioned they may be, you'd have this chance to really come up with some good public policy here in the state in a state that really desperately needs it. You put up a picture this morning of you know, how much homeless people and drugs there are. We see the traffic all the time. We spend the second most per capita of any state in the union, for, you know, from the tax taxes. Budget per capita. Collects. Budget per capita. Yeah. yeah. Second That's, highest in the U.S. The state is in need of real independent thoughts and leadership and solutions. And it seems like from what you're describing, the leadership as it stands does its best to stymie that rather than foster that. And part of the problem, guys, is that it's not just a democratic, a Democrat party problem. It's a Republican party problem too. Mm -hmm. We, we have the same issues going on in the Republican party that the Democrats do. You got to bear down and be the best Republican or you don't get elected. Well, the reality is we're missing the Hatfields and the Atias and the McCalls. You guys are way, way too young to remember these people. <laughs> but they were people that really understood how to cross the aisle. My boss right now, Bev Clarno, she was Speaker of the House. She had incredible bipartisan support on a number of things back in the late 90s that really made positive changes here in Oregon. So when you say if we were, if the Republicans were in power, we'd want to stay there, you're absolutely right. That would be the common refrain, but it would be wrong in my opinion. We have to have a clear intent to not look for the money and the power and the influence that the party brings as a primary objective over and above looking for good policy. Well, so I'd be curious for your thoughts. What's the difference between... The 70s and the 80s, and I think even into the 90s, with some of those names that you had mentioned, what's the difference between that era and now, where people on, on either party could reach across the aisle and earn support based on the, the sincerity with which they presented their ideas and the solutions that they came up with, versus now, you are 
only as good or you're only as bad as the letter behind your name. And it's just you are either loved by the people that you are there next to or you're just despised if you set one toe out of line. It was foreseen by the founding fathers that the amassing of power would lead to the problem that we're now seeing. But I think it has been significantly um, worse since the advent of what I call the social media phenomenon. The 140-character comment doesn't have nuance to it. It doesn't allow us to really engage in a debate about policy that might actually cause one of us to say, wow, I never thought of that. Mm -hmm. Can't do it in 140 characters. Can't do it on Facebook or Instagram. And the financial news networks are not quite as bad, but the traditional cable news network clearly is using partisan infighting as its means of getting advertisers to come onto their program because they know they've got an audience that wants to hear how bad the other guy is. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's about entertainment. It's about clicks, about eyeballs. Yeah. It's not about the news. It's not about giving the facts. You have so many options. And so this is how they differentiate themselves is by being as crazy as they, as they can while still maintaining the illusion that they're that news. They're, yeah. News or air quotes or heavily nonpartisan or non-biased. It's interesting that you were talking about the voter registration. Uh, Steve Trout, our elections division director, and I were talking about that just a couple of hours ago. We're looking at the trends in registration. We're at about 25% statewide Republican registration right now. Roughly 32, 33% Democrat. And we're right at the 33% non-affiliated and minor party voters. And within six months, the non-affiliated minor party voters, the non-Republican, non-Democrats will definitely be higher than both of those parties. And Steve actually was um, an elections director down in California as well. So he's seen this trend for a lot of years before he came to Oregon. And his prediction is that it's only going to accelerate, that we're going to have more and more people not join a party. But as long as we have the party in control, the majority party in control, once they get to the legislature, it's not going to matter. Those non-affiliated voters are going to continue to feel like we don't have any place to really play this game. Do you think that has to do with the both parties kind of going to the extremes, or do you think that there's another factor involved with that rise of the non-affiliated voter? Certainly, I think both parties going to the extreme feeds it. But I also think that there is a growing portion, and it's frankly younger voters, in my opinion. A lot of people say, oh, the younger voters, they don't even think about anything and they're just all there to have fun and drink and et cetera. I am not. Which as a younger voter, <laughs> you like I'll to just drink. say that's top notch. <laughs> yeah, so that's, say I'm right there. <laughs> High on your priority list. <laughs> the reality is the millennials and the younger voters, in my opinion, are now the most thoughtful voters we have in many respects. Hmm. And yet, they're not inclined to be party players. They don't want to go join a party for the most part. So I've always kind of had this like crazy soapbox conspiracy theory, but 
since Oregon has instituted the the motor voter automatic registration, everybody that I, you know, it's small sample size, but a lot of my friends who have moved here, you you automatically become registered to vote and they just don't bother to tick the box, don't bother to check the box. James and I have two very good friends who are absolutely 100% Republicans. They were all excited to go join the Multnomah County Republican Party with us until they found out that they weren't actually registered Republicans. They got their licenses one day and didn't realize you actually had to check another box to go be a Republican. And now they're not. They have to go wait six months. But No, they don't. No, they don't. Well, to, well, to to join the MCRP at least that oh, was okay. one of their stipulations. Yeah. You have to, yeah, you have to be a, yeah. you know, because they don't want just people coming and trying to take over the party, like like James is doing. <laughs> we <laughs> have our little podcast, but <laughs> but once you are, you know, once you realize that about yourself, and once you say, "Hey, I'm I didn't register as a Republican or a Democrat," you are less anchored to the preconceived notions of what each party says. And even if you were like most young people are, you tend to lean to the left, you tend to lean blue. Once you get yourself away from that and you say, I'm not R or D, I'm looking at Newt or Kate or, you know, Rich versus your opponent, what you know, whatever, you're more inclined to actually look at the ideas and look at the platforms that the people are running on and when you know it, I had some really good conversations with people who voted D up and down the ticket, but because they weren't registered D in Oregon, but you know, me on Newt's staff, they were willing to give Newt a look and some of them actually did vote for him. Yeah. I can only hope that what you're saying becomes more and more true. I think it's going to. I think we are, again, at that inflection point where people are saying this system that is purely two-party vying for power isn't going to get us good policy. So getting back to the Secretary of State's office, um, where you're currently working, what do you guys have coming up or maybe something that you've recently completed, an audit or something? What what are you kind of proud of since you've been on board? Well, we recently released a cybersecurity audit, and it looked at the Department of Administrative Services. And our conclusion was that we've got some real problems in how our computer systems are being managed at the state level. Now, the Secretary of State's office is independent, so we're not part of that that overall Department of Administrative Services. And we're kind of proud of the fact that we believe we've got a better IT system than others. But it's our duty to audit. And so Mm -hmm. we looked at this system, and the reality is it's things that they have been told over and over and over, and they're still not making the changes. It was, it was a DHS person who clicked on a phishing link like six months ago or something like that. And there was a lot of people's personal information that got sent out as part of, you know, whatever Trojan horse that was. That, and, and that's just one example, Nick. Mm. There's multiple examples. And the other problem we have right now is we haven't kept our systems up to date and there are outages all the time. And this is really a bummer for us because we've got people logging on thousands of times a day to look at corporation registrations or update their corporation registration or their business assumed business name or whatever it might be. And if the servers are down because the security isn't working right. We had to take them offline to keep them from being hacked. Suddenly people can't get their services. It's, it's not a good situation. And that audit, I'm really hoping it, it got some pretty good air in the press. I'm really hoping it will get the attention of legislators during the next session and, and hopefully they'll do something about it. People like Betsy Johnson are really fired up about this issue. 
That's another thing that baffles me. Again, going back to the second highest budget per capita in, in the nation. And yet we have these things that just crumbling infrastructure. It kind of makes you wonder just like, where is all that money going? Well, I will tell you that one of the things that has surprised me since I got involved with state government and particularly working as deputy secretary of state, there are a lot of very, very good, professionally very qualified people working in state government. Hmm. But there are also a lot of folks that aren't. And there is a lot of slippage, I'll say. I think our labor force is one of the biggest places that we have to really pay attention to. Not particularly at the Secretary of State's office, but throughout state government, we need to take a look at that. However, more of it has to do with management. In my opinion, our biggest problem is we have not managed our people well, and it all starts at the top. Our leaders need to choose division heads that are good managers, that know how to be efficient. And if you can't manage a business, your business is going to fail. Government is not exactly a business, but in that sense, it works the same way. If you can't manage the people in a way that things are being done efficiently, we've got real problems. Yeah. I spent eight years in the army. That's been my experience with, you know, working for the government and even the military is just so totally inefficient and backwards in the way they do some things. Yeah. One of the reasons I'm a Republican is <laughs> the government is never the most efficient way to do anything, basically. And that's why I'm a Republican also. But I think we as Republicans sometimes make the mistake of thinking that government's bad. Government mm. is not bad. Yeah. Without government, I've been a lot of places in the world that did not have decent, strong governments. And I wouldn't want to live there. It was a mess. But I think we could learn a great deal by looking around at some of our neighboring states, even at some of the other countries that have adopted some things. Singapore, for example, on the transportation front is just amazing. Mm -hmm. And we could learn a great deal from them. Utah right now is addressing the homeless problem in a way that's revolutionary and has made a huge difference in Salt Lake City. Putting it, housing first, right? Putting housing first. Yeah. And, and actually addressing the mental health issues when they deal with that housing problem. It's a, it's not necessarily revolutionary, but they got real committed and they did it right and it has made a big difference. But then you look at Seattle. Have you, have you watched the Seattle's, Seattle's dying? dying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just a sad, sad commentary. And unfortunately, we're emulating Seattle more than we are Salt Lake City. And there's no reason for that. We could certainly learn from others. A lot of times we talk about the Oregon way. And I love Oregon. But, doggone, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be looking around and learning from our neighbors. Yeah. There's 49 other laboratories of democracy. You know, if somebody else has a good idea, let's just let's do the Salt Lake City way. They figured it out. Let's not reinvent the wheel. Well, so, in Nebraska, it, we were talking about the Nebraska legislature. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot in Oregon about juvenile justice reform. Yeah. Nebraska was the first state in the union to do serious hmm. juvenile justice reform. Hmm. Primarily a Republican state. Here, the Democrats own the juvenile justice reform narrative, and the Republicans tend to poo-poo it. Again, a partisan example of how we're just not getting the best mm -hmm. policy done. Yeah. Just going back to that Utah thing again, let me see if I remember how this how this goes, just for the listeners. So basically what we do, typically what you do when you're dealing with homeless is 
you offer them housing, but you have, you have catches. They have to be clean, sober. They have to be searching for a job. There's all these sorts of different hoops they have to jump through to get in the housing program. And what Utah has started doing is giving them homes or at least housing regardless of their situation. And then once they're in stable housing, working on getting them clean and sober and counseling and into the workforce. So that's kind of the, the home first mentality rather than, you know, you have to fix yourself before you can get, get some government assistance. And we've talked about that here. Frankly, a lot of Republicans pushed back on that because of the idea that that lazy SOB doesn't deserve a house. Let, you know, let him prove that he's really wants to be a contributing member of society. Then maybe we'll help him with the house. I think the Utah approach is an appropriate approach for us to look carefully at, but it would require in Oregon, because we do have some differences in our laws, a very careful and very thoughtful dialogue among a whole bunch of people that don't necessarily agree at the outset over a long enough period of time that they can really thrash through the issues. And a committee hearing where the committee chair cans the people that are testifying and you have two hours isn't going to do it. Yeah. Well, and that's, and I feel like we as a party, we in the GOP are great at not recognizing the true cost of things. And I, James and I just spoke with a gentleman uh, a couple of days ago on a podcast who had served almost six years in prison. And he said, look, the thing about it is it costs $49,000 a year to keep one inmate in prison in the state of Oregon. And if you're going to spend $48,999 on getting that person out of jail and into, you know, rehabilitated and not interested in life of crime and housed and job training, you've saved money and you're a fiscal conservative now. And people will really look at that $448,999 and say, well, that's a lot of money, not recognizing the cost savings that, that does exist in something like that. And I feel like you're, you're, you're making the exact same point there. What's, what's the most efficient way to do the most good for the most number of people? And we are just, not seeing the forest for the trees. And the homeless issue is so much bigger. Yeah, just kind of piggybacking on that. All of the emergency room calls, all of the police activity, all of the decrease in quality of life for all the people who live around where the homeless hang out, all of that is a cost. And, you know, I don't have a number, but yeah, to your point, give them housing, get put the money toward getting them off the street. It's better for them. It's better for the community. Everyone benefits. And it's cost less money. You know, an interesting example of one of these discussions that's occurring right now is around the death penalty. Mm. We, we had that in this last legislative session. And former Oregon Chief Justice Paul DeMunis, who is a Republican, was one of the big backers of what was the doctor's name that ran uh, in Kevorkian? Uh, no, no, no. For, <laughs> for Governor Kevorkian. <laughs> He didn't get too many votes. We don't know why. But Bud Pierce. Oh, Bud Pierce. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Pierce, if you're listening, we're so sorry. Yeah. But no, no uh, implication intended there, buddy. Um, anyway, uh, Chief Justice DeMunis has made the argument that by the time we spend the millions of dollars 
that we spend on appeals and court cases relative to whether or not we're going to actually execute somebody and how seldom we actually go through with the execution, we could save hundreds of millions of dollars just by taking death penalty off the table and recognizing that life in prison is probably going to save us millions of dollars in the long run for those real hardcore criminals. So those are the kinds of things that I absolutely agree. A fiscal conservative needs to be careful not to just swallow the party line and actually look at the numbers and think about the implications of the policies that we're debating. Could well, not agree more. And that's, you know, that's why we do this podcast is we, you know, we like to put different ideas out there. And that's, you know, novel concept among Republicans is let's find different ways to save money. Yeah, exactly. So we're getting toward the end of the podcast. I had to ask you one thing and don't feel free not to answer if you if you don't want. But are you running for secretary of state next year? <laughs> I honestly don't know. I, I uh, spent some time today with a couple of people that have run for statewide office. Um, good people, friends of mine. And it was kind of a therapy session because <laughs> I, I vacillate constantly on this question. I would love to find a place where I could continue to maybe nudge the ship just a little bit at a time toward a more effective policy discussion. If I can do that as Secretary of State, I'd love to do that. But I'd also like to win. And I don't want to put my family through what a statewide campaign would be if there's just simply not a path there. It's going to depend on a lot of things. And that's all I'll say right now. But I won't foreclose the possibility. And I will say that I really hope that there's a, a place for me to continue to be engaged in the legislative and public administration process. Obviously, I think we three certainly, and I think many of the listeners of this podcast would know that Secretary Clarno came into the office under you know, sad, morose circumstances. And I think everybody in the state took a lot from Secretary Richardson and both in terms of leadership lessons and how to be a man, a father, a family member, and a Secretary of State, as well as the type of work that he actually engaged in and the types of things he was looking to fix here in the state of Oregon. What do you think Secretary Clarno is is taking out of the Richardson playbook? And what would you like to see continue to be emulated for the Republican nominee or the Democratic nominee, hopefully both in 2020? I'm sure there's going to be some that really bristle at this observation. Um, I was personal friends with Dennis, and I have known him a long time. We spent many um, conversations talking about things other than politics. And so I know him as a man, not just as a politician. But Dennis was in that office in a more partisan way than Bev Clarno is. Bev Clarno is going to be just as diligent as we conduct these audits as Dennis ever was. She is going to be just as diligent in maintaining the integrity of our election system. Um, she wants our corporations division to continue to be the best in the country, and it is. We can register a corporation faster in Oregon than any other state in the union. Um, she wants our archives to be the place that people really know they can trust the historical record of how government works. And at 83 years old, honestly, guys, she's going on 40. Her mind mm. is like a steel trap. Her memory is like an elephant. 
drives me crazy as a deputy because I, <laughs> I, you know, she is really something in that respect. So she has, I believe, done everything possible to not just respect, but enhance that presentation that Dennis was making. But she has stated more and more now, we are not going to allow partisanship to play any part in what the Secretary of State's office does. She's even talked about whether or not we should begin advocating for the Secretary of State's office to become a nonpartisan office. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that I think Dennis's approach to really more robust audits was absolutely the right thing to do. But in a few cases, the way they were rolled out seemed enough partisan that it mm -hmm. got a backlash from the other side. Bev is being very, very thoughtful about how we roll these things out. And one of the ways we intend to maybe even enhance it more is not just roll an audit out once and say this agency needs to get its act together, but then go back six months later. And if it hasn't got its act together, say it again. Mm. Say it in a supplemental report. Start being consistent about those things that you really note need better performance and say them over and over and over. I'm frankly excited about what I think we will accomplish in the next uh, 16 months or so. Well, certainly one way to, uh, to talk about the news is to, to be on a podcast. And I'm excited that you, you know, y'all are starting one and tonight you've learned how not to do one and all the mistakes you can make. <laughs> Guys, you're great. <laughs> appreciate but that. But we, we tend to end the episodes with a chance to ask our guest who his or her favorite Republican is. So if you, if we're, if we're going to put you on the spot, who would you say your favorite Republican is, alive or dead? If I had to choose just one, I would look at Vicatia. Vicatia was a true statesman. He, he was a Republican. He was a party guy. He rose to leadership in the party in the Oregon legislature, um, and, and continued to be a leader as he continued in state government. But I can honestly say that I've never talked to anybody who knew Vicatia, regardless of what party they were from, that didn't absolutely know that he was trustworthy, that he was honestly trying to do the right thing, and that he would always listen to everyone. I'd love to die having that kind of a reputation. My mother-in-law actually grew up down the street from the Atiyas and just had, she leans to the left, but had just always said that just the absolute most incredible things, just the nicest people, smart, caring, kind, everything you could ask for. And you would think in 2019 that that's something that more people would want to emulate. Well, I, I hope that whatever I do, I might cause my children to think that being active in public service is the right thing to do. And it was guys like Vicatia that caused me to think that. So I'm really grateful for his, his example. Got it. Great answer. All right. Well, Rich, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was really great to, to talk with you this evening. Best of luck to you guys. I think you're doing a good thing and I hope you continue this long form uh, conversation. It's very important. Thanks, Thanks, sir. Our six listeners agree. <laughs> <laughs> and to your, our six listeners, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Rational Republican. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting service or you can listen on our website, jamesaball.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media and if you're feeling extra generous, you can visit our Patreon site, at patreon.com slash rationalrepublican. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.